Good morning, gentlemen. Thank you for coming out today. I'm so glad you're here, and it's been a while since I've gotten to uh, be behind this pulpit for uh, first watch, but I'm glad to get back. Um, and I want to have you turn with me to Romans 1. That'll be our little starting point. After that, we're going to go to about a dozen and a half more scriptures. I won't have you turn to all of them because we won't have time for that, but you might make note of them. While you're finding Romans 1, I, want, I need to back up just a little bit. It's been since last fall, but I told you that my, my first focus for First Watch messages in 2023 would be the topic of a Christian man's humility. And that was something we introduced. Um, I did an introductory message. I'm going to do four more this year, starting uh, this morning. And so just to kind of get our thoughts back on track on this, I, I want to do a quick flyover of what we did a few months ago. And, and I don't think this is in your notes, and it's okay. It doesn't need to be. We characterize humility as the greatest goal of discipleship. That the disciple of Jesus Christ is is striving for humility. That's what we're looking for. And I gave you a simple definition of humility, and that was having a proper estimation of yourself. That's humility, having a proper estimation of yourself. Not too high, not too low, just the proper estimation. I gave you six reasons that humility is the greatest goal of discipleship. And again, these aren't in your notes. We're just reviewing. The first reason is that humility is to be clothed with heavenly garments. That humility makes you act and appear godly. And you think and act in heavenly terms. We also said that humility is man's truest nobility. That that's where you're really the most noble. You want honor and respect and nobility as a man. You get that through humility, not the other way around. To be a servant of all, you don't give off the impression of your own importance. Rather, you give off the impression that you are a servant of all, and that does gain you honor and respect. We said that humility is a sign of genuine salvation. And this is easy to make a case that the root of all sin is pride. When you're repenting of sin, you're repenting of pride. Those two go hand in hand. You're hating your sin. You're hating your, your pride. The very definition of hating pride in all its forms is taking on humility. And that is characteristic of a believer. And I have no trouble telling a professing believer who refuses to receive instruction, who refuses to acknowledge sin, who refuses to um, ha- have a humble attitude towards sin, th- to say, you're not acting like a believer, and the longer you do this, the more doubt there is. Because believers are humble. We've been humbled. We've bent the knee to Christ. And so we are humble. So fourth reason humility is the greatest goal of discipleship. It's the fundamental root of all obedience to the Word of God. It is the fundamental root of obedience to the Word of God. I would challenge you to find one command in Scripture that's not rooted in humility. They all are. All of them. I gave you a fifth reason that humility is the greatest goal of discipleship. Humility is the answer to every habitual sin you struggle with. Every bad habit that is sinful you have, that is answered by humility. And there's a simple question you ask. If you, if you can successfully answer, what pride do I have that keeps me returning to this sin over and over again, then that will take that sin down. That will, that will defeat it. And usually the, the pride is something like, 
I deserve this or I need this. And you know what? They all start with the word I. And then the sixth reason we said that humility is the greatest goal of discipleship. Humility is the hallmark of Christ-likeness. It is Christ-like to be humility, to be humble. If you're pursuing Christ-likeness, you're pursuing humility. Those two go hand in hand. You can't do one without the other. We spent all of our time back in, I think it was November or so, to uh, look at Philippians 2, and that was to examine the humility of Christ as the ultimate model. And Philippians 2, of course, is the key passage explaining the nature of exactly what took place for Jesus Christ to step down out of heaven onto this earth and into time and space as a man. And Philippians 2 explained in detail the humiliation, the exaltation of Christ uh, all the way from, from the top down to the bottom and the bottom all the way up to the top. His trip downward to earth all the way to human death and his trip upward to enthronement as a human king who is God, a king before which all creation will one day bow. Philippians 2 is, is the text that explains this. But what we saw was that the main purpose of that text, although it is a tremendous doctrinal explanation of Christ, the main purpose of that text is to give us a model for humility. Nobody has ever humbled themselves at the level that Christ has. None of you have stepped down out of heaven. We won't even step outside our front door sometimes. But none of you have ever stepped out of heaven. None of you have ever been perfect and yet humiliated by everyone that you came to love. And so Christ is the ultimate model. And we identified the ways that Jesus humbled himself. He humbled himself by leaving heaven. He humbled himself by submitting to authority. He humbled himself by associating with the lowly. He humbled himself by not responding to insults. He humbled himself by not defending himself even though he was innocent. And we could make a much longer list. But he, we saw, was the ultimate example. So what is humility? It is having a proper estimation of yourself. Well, this morning I'd like to add to that definition. And then we're going to do some hallmarks of a humble Christian man. We'll do seven of them today. So let me add to that definition of humility. I'm not going to add to it quite yet. We have to lay a doctrinal foundation. Romans 1, verse 1. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. And that's all we need right now. I'm very thankful for the Legacy Standard Version being the first modern English translation to properly translate doulos as slave. Traditionally, this is translated bondservant or it's translated servant. And the reason is historical. Both British and American history is tarnished with uh, cruel slavery. And so translators of English versions have been hesitant to use the word slave. That is a wrong motive. You don't go to the culture and say, how should we translate the Bible? It is clearly slave. So we can add to our definition here. Humility is having the disposition and attitude of a slave of Christ. Pride is having the disposition and attitude of a master over self. The humility is having the disposition and attitude of a slave of Christ. Pride is having the disposition and attitude of a master over yourself. So anytime anything you think, do, or say is for the express purpose of self only, this is generally a manifestation of pride. Almost every time. Now, I need to take a little digression here about slavery, just so we kind of understand what we're talking about. Throughout history, slavery has existed in three basic forms. 
The first form is man-stealing, what today we would call human trafficking. The second form, voluntary slavery. The third form, judicial slavery. Let me explain those. Man-stealing, this is what took place in America. Innocent people being forced into and then born into slavery. Exodus 21.16 specifically condemns man-stealing and in fact was punishable by death in Israel and rightly so. But then there's voluntary slavery. This is a form of slavery which still exists today. It's more flexible. It's more sophisticated today. It's called other names. In our country in particular, you always have the choice to work your way out of this type of slavery. But this exists in the Bible. Uh, Jacob agreed to work for his uncle Laban for seven years in exchange for room and board and a wife. That's voluntary slavery. The law of Moses allowed someone to pay off a debt by voluntary enslavement until the debt was paid. Almost all of you work for someone else who controls a pretty good chunk of your life. Yes, you can unvolunteer for that sort of slavery, but you've also volunteered for other forms of slavery, like an electric bill and a mortgage. And so you work for a master in order to pay off these other masters. And that's okay. And then there's judicial slavery. In the Bible, slavery was often the form of punishment against someone else. Uh, the law of Moses prescribed, for example, that a man who stole from another would become the slave of the victim until the debt was paid, which is, by the way, much more effective than prison, and it created a relationship, and it created uh, a, 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 a bond, and it didn't create resentment. What happens today? If a man robs you, that man is sent to prison, and your taxes pay for that. That's a double theft. It does absolutely nothing. It's a terrible system and it has no basis in biblical law whatsoever. So what form of slavery is the Christian as a follower of Christ? Well, there's not a direct correlation, but here's the closest we can come. The form of slavery we are under is the positive results of a judicial enslavement amounting to voluntary enslavement. I'll say that again. The positive results of a judicial enslavement amounting to voluntary enslavement. Judicial enslavement. You are forced to be a slave. That's judicial enslavement. How many of you here were so smart that you could bypass your own depravity, bypass your own depraved mind that the heart is desperately sick and nobody can understand it. How many of you here were smart enough to objectively decide that you needed to approach God as an equal and say, I would like to be your slave? None of you did. You were enslaved against your will. And praise God because your will was to go straight to hell. And you say, well, that sounds cruel. You know what? You can, you can dump that cruelty on me all day long because God chose me to be a slave. That is judicial enslavement. Now, any Christian who understands the doctrine of election, I have never heard one say, you know, I really resent the fact that God has forced me to be saved and God is going to give me heaven forever and, and, and he's given me all these blessings. I, I really resent that. Nope. In your mind and in our human minds, we all volunteered for this slavery, right? 
So it is the positive results of a judicial enslavement amount to voluntary enslavement. And we have a clear biblical precedent for this. Exodus uh, 21 and in Deuteronomy also uh, make a provision for the slave in Israel to voluntarily remain in the service of his master because of the care and protection he experienced. And, and this, is, this is what's so amazing. The system they had was designed so that you, as a thief, for example, you are judicially commanded that you will be a slave to this family until your debt is paid. And you, But I stole all of their livestock and I can't repay that in a lifetime. Well, uh, thankfully you have the year of Jubilee, so you only have to be a slave for six years at the most. Um, and maybe you start earlier than that or later and so you, you're even luckier. But the problem is, is that the slave working for this family and being fed by the family and cared for by the family and housed by the family becomes attached to the family. And for that reason, God made a provision for a slave to say, I just want to stay here. I just want to serve these people. Well, that's what, we, that's what we do. That is a picture of our salvation, that we have been enslaved, but now we, we're so thankful for that. But some of you might still be uncomfortable with the terminology. Why are you a slave of Christ? What, what is it about slavery we're so uncomfortable with? One of the things we're uncomfortable with is the fact that it is the purchase of a human being. And, and we, we rail against that. But why are you a slave? 1 Corinthians 6.20 says you were bought with a price. You were purchased. God owns you. The truest category of your slavery is that you are obligated to the one who rescued you from the clutches of sin and a sentence of eternal hell. And so Paul commands us as slaves of Christ, Philippians 1.27, live your lives in the manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So you have no right to pride. You have no right to self. Slaves don't have rights. They don't own anything. They don't have dreams. They don't have wishes. They don't have hopes. They just follow their master. So again, humility is having the disposition and attitude of a slave of Christ. Pride is having the disposition and attitude of a master over self. So how does this work, work itself out? You know, the beauty of this is if you will truly, with 110% of your heart, believe you were a slave and you have no rights, and that every time a scripture gives you a command, you fall on your face and you say, yes, master, then I don't have to preach these sermons. But I do want to give you 28 hallmarks of a humble Christian man will do them seven at a time seven this time seven each the next time now at this point I'm just going to give you scripture references it'll take too long to turn to each one first hallmark of a humble Christian man he receives God's sovereign design he receives God's sovereign design In Paul's great defense of the sovereign right of God to do whatever he pleases, Paul says in Romans 9, beginning in verse 19, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Will the thing molded say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Or does not the potter have authority over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Now, the precise context of Romans 9 is that God has the right to save those he has chosen and to not save those he has not. And so, if we use the argument from the greater to the lesser, we could say this. 
if it's true that God has all rights over the, the massive realm of the eternal destinies of the men that he created, how much more does he have all rights over every single detail of your life? And so uh, the, the context then helps us go from the greater to the lesser. Will the thing molded say to the molder, why did you make me like this? We could add a little bit of commentary here. Will the thing molded say to the molder, why did you do this in my life? Will the thing molded say to the molder, why did you allow this pain? Will the thing molded say to the molder, why am I having this trial and suffering? Why am I having a bad day, a bad week, bad month, bad year, bad life? I'm not going to do a long defense of the sovereignty of God. It seems like we talk about the sovereignty of God every week at Grace. Somebody said, I feel like you talk about sovereignty too much. And I was like, I don't think that's possible, is it? Because every one of us wakes up every morning needing to reassert the sovereignty of God in our lives. But I do want to point out that if, if you truly believe that God is sovereign... And what does that mean? It means that the pains and the trials and the heartaches you experience in life are part of his plan. They they were written out for you. It was God's curriculum for you. There are good and long theological explanations for this. But honestly, I, I don't think the good and long theological explanations are really necessary for the child of the living God that simply trusts that God knows what he's doing and I do not. It's really that simple. And you don't have to reconcile it. Well, what about the choices I make? And what about the bad things that I... God knows what he's doing and you do not. Everything is ordained by God. And the more you believe that, the more you will be humble. The child of the living God lives in simple trust, like Job. Uh, what, What an example Job at least starts off as. He lost everything precious to him. Job 1, beginning in verse 20, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head. He fell to the ground. So yes, he's grieving. He's sad. He's lost all of his children. He's lost his property. He's destroyed. He fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. Yahweh gave, and Yahweh has taken away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. Now, You read on in Job, the story of the book of Job is that Job spent too much time thinking after that and began questioning God. If it it had stopped right there as this one little short uh, 21 verse book, that would have been awesome. That would have been a great lesson. But what did Job ultimately do? Ultimately, he began blaming God. Blaming God, becoming angry at God, that's really one of the most foolish and prideful things a believer can do. And let me give you three reasons blaming God is foolish and why it's prideful. First reason, it assumes you know better than God what is best for you. It assumes that you know better. That if something hurts, you clearly did not deserve that. This is a response of pride. This is the same response that a little bitty kid has. You've seen it. I get asked the question a lot. How do you know when a baby knows what's right and wrong? Well, here's a simple way. When the little baby, when they're 9, 10, 11 months old, and they can understand the word no, and you have object A over here that is a no. And the baby is there and goes like this. And you go, no. How do you know that that kid thinks that he or she knows best? When you say no, then they do this. <laughs> and they test. Because you know what that baby's saying? I know best. And because I don't understand why you're saying no then I'm going to do it anyway. 
So the second reason being angry at God is foolish and prideful. This assumes that God is somehow obligated to not place pain in your life. Is God obligated to not place pain in your life? Not at all. Job tells a different story at the beginning of his trial, but the warning of the book of Job is that Job began in complete submission to the sovereignty of God, but he began to to question God. Basically what Job started to say was, I don't deserve this. You shouldn't have done this to me. I'm a worshiper. And there's a third reason that blaming God is prideful. It places you in the position of acting like an unbeliever. It places you in the position of acting like an unbeliever. The unbeliever uses the excuse of personal pain or tragedy in the world to avoid submitting to God. And what's the question they ask? How can a good God do X, Y, and Z? Right? And they use that as an excuse to not come to the Lord. But if you're angry at God for doing something you don't like, you're doing the same thing. You're acting like an unbeliever. How can a good God do this? Especially to precious me. So blaming God... So dead end. On the positive end, if you receive God's sovereign design, you know what that does? It just puts pain in perspective. It was God's plan for today. And it also helps you show the second hallmark of a humble Christian man. Here's the second one. He guards against unrighteous anger. He guards against unrighteous anger. And I, I'm going to take a minute to clarify here and be precise because I've heard it said that anger is sinful. Anger is not inherently sinful. As a matter of fact, righteous anger occurs when you are rightly angry at what angers God. Um, it's, it's self-righteousness and it's really the sign of an unbeliever to pretend to not be angry at anything in the name of being accepting and tolerant and loving. No, there are things that are to make you angry. Ephesians 4.26 says to be angry. It's a passive imperative. It means be angered. By the right things. This is a quote from Psalm 4 when King David is in distress. It's a, uh, very likely a continuation of the situation in Psalm 3 in which David's son Absalom has usurped the throne of Israel. David's on the run. David is giving an admonition to himself and to the reader, be angry, righteous anger in, a, in an unjust situation. But of course, if you know your Bible at all, both Ephesians 4.26 and Psalm 4.4 4 continue on, be angry and what? Do not sin. Righteous anger is being angry at what angers God. But it stops there because in reality, God alone has the right to act on righteous anger. God alone is the judge. The rest of Psalm 4 tells us what we do with righteous anger. Do not sin. Verse 4, trust in Yahweh. Verse 5, remember the gladness that God puts in the heart of the believer. And verse 7, and I love the way Psalm 4 ends. I will lie down and sleep in peace. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. That you sleep peacefully when unjust things are happening. So that's righteous anger. But what about unrighteous anger? Unrighteous anger happens when the source of the anger is unmet expectations. You expected X and Y happened, therefore you're angry. And a man can get into the sinful habit of outbursts of anger or silent withdrawing or, or uh, passive forms of, of uh, revenge, angry looks. You know all the signs. Um, if I could like scoot you guys out and get your wives in here and just say, tell me how your husband gets angry. They could say, ooh, me, me, me. You know, they would all want to go first. 
you know what your ways are. You know how you get unrighteously anger, angry. And maybe you're not a maybe you're not a guy who yells and screams. Maybe you just silently stew. This just is sinful. It just manifests itself differently. And when you have unmet expectations and this leads you to believe that it's okay for you to be angry, this reveals two things. And, and that's the beauty of pain and trials. They reveal your heart. But here's what this re- reveals. It, first, it reveals a lack of actual belief in the sovereignty of God. If you believe the sovereignty of God, then you also believe Psalm, or Proverbs 16.9, the heart of man plans his way, but Yahweh directs his steps. What does that say? Let me translate that. You have expectations and God will not meet them. That's what Proverbs 16.9 says. A genuine belief in the, in the sovereignty of God says the unmet expectations in my life are put there by God for further sanctification. The other thing that unrighteous anger reveals is a, is a lack of humility. A lack of humility. Becoming angry at unmet expectations reveals a self-importance. It reveals greed to have what you want. But you're a slave. Slaves can't have unmet expectations because they don't have expectations. Their contentment is found in giving up expectations as that which can cause unrighteous anger. And if I had if I had some way to zap instant sanctification into every man in this room and you literally had no more expectations and when terrible things happen to you, you say, of course it does. I'm a slave of Christ. God can run over me. God can kill me and I'll still serve him. I don't care. He can stick me in the most horrible situations and it doesn't matter. I'm a slave. He can beat me. He can do whatever he wants. I'm a slave. You would sleep so well at night. You would sleep so wonderfully. The popular term today is anger management. Anger management is basically the attempt to control your emotions and the physical response you have to anger. But it's it's like all bogus psychological programs, it doesn't address the root pride, the root pride problem. That's what the problem is, is pride. I mean, think about this. Anger management, even the very term says, it's okay that you're angry, you just can't act on it. Okay, well, let's have a lust management program. Or let's have a theft management program. It's okay that you steal, you just, you see how it falls apart really quickly? But if you make a study of humility of what it means to be a slave of Christ or what it means to be a living sacrifice, Romans 12, now you're killing the cause of unrighteous anger at the root. And if you will truly dive into Scripture and and eat and chew and digest what the Bible says about humility and that, that you're a slave of Christ and you truly begin to believe that, you will find that the things that used to irritate you don't. They just don't. Because you're a slave. Well, but have you ever, you know, have you heard the way my wife speaks to me? Jesus didn't speak and he was perfectly innocent. Hebrews 12.3 says, For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. All of us as men fight against anger. Better to fight against the root cause. Pride, which is the root of all sin. Don't, don't try to fight your anger. Fight pride. And the anger will take care of itself. There's a third hallmark of a humble Christian man. He properly assesses his importance. He properly assesses his importance. 
The man who's beset by the sinful habit, the prideful thoughts, tends to assess himself with an inflated sense of just how wonderful he is. And yes, you are important to your wife. And yes, you are important to your children and perhaps important to a few around you. But who gave you that position? Who gave you all of that? Listen to Paul's rebuke to the Corinthians who struggled deeply with pride as a church. He said in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? In other words, why are you acting like anything useful or good wasn't given to you in the first place? Why are you acting like it was you inherently wonderful? He reminds them in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians that not many of you are noble, not many of you are wise. Basically, he's saying, you know, the church is mostly made up of idiots. That's who God calls. 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul reminds, he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Now, in context, Paul is acknowledging that he's had a widespread, effective ministry. In fact, more widespread than every other apostle. The Apostle Paul is the greatest apostle in terms of ministry. But listen to his self-assessment in context. 1 Corinthians 15, 9, For I am the least of the apostles, and not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than... Than all of them. In other words, for some reason, my ministry has been more effective than all of the other apostles. But he says, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Here's a statement of self-importance. And I hear this in my office. I hear this from church members. I have examined my heart and I am clean and innocent in this matter. My motives are entirely pure. I have examined my heart. I think that's what's called a conflict of interest. (laughs) That'll hit you here as we go. What is this? That's the sinful strategy of somebody being confronted with sin. It's a sinful strategy. Their defense is literally a self-righteousness defense. That I have personally looked at my own heart, I have declared myself innocent, and since that's the case, anything you say is irrelevant because I've declared myself innocent. But back in 1 Corinthians 4, listen to the great and mighty Apostle Paul and whether or not he thinks he can assess his own heart. Paul is being criticized by the Corinthian church, unfairly, I might add. And listen to his response. It's honest, but it's humble. He says in 1 Corinthians 4, beginning in verse 3, But to me it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In other words, he's saying, I really don't care what you think. Because... And you can see what he says. In fact, I do not even examine myself. Okay, what is he saying here? I sort of care what you think, and I really don't care what I think. For I am conscious of nothing against myself. In other words, he's saying, I am not aware of sin in my heart against you. Yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Paul is saying that his self-examination doesn't prove anything doesn't prove him innocent. He throws himself under the mercy and perfect wisdom of God's examination. Now, I know that the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, examine yourselves. What is he saying? He's not saying, think about how you feel about something and decide you're right. What he's saying is, look at the fruit of your life to see if you are a Christian. Look at the fruit. 
Examining yourselves is taking your actions and comparing them to Scripture and seeing if they line up. Pride says, I've examined my heart and I am innocent. Humility says, I have examined my heart and I'm not aware of anything, but this proves nothing. I'm going to listen to what you have to say. Here's a fourth hallmark of a humble Christian man. He avoids unrealistic standards. He avoids unrealistic standards. I'm going to try and get this part perfect. (laughs) I was waiting. Here it comes. That's perfectionism, isn't it? The continual quest to make everything perfect. And and people, they, they say, well... You know, if I want to be a perfectionist, that's my business. The problem is people who are perfectionists tend to expect it of everybody around them too. The continual quest to make everything perfect, there are two major reasons that this happens and both of them are sinful. The first major reason is to make myself feel secure. To make myself feel secure. When you can only be secure when everything is perfect, you have bowed down to the idol of controlling your environment. That that's the pathway to peace. That that's the pathway to contentment. That I can control everything in my environment. I counseled with a man once and he worried incessantly about money. And he, for all intents and purposes, was poor. He drove a terrible car. He wore used clothes that he got from Goodwill, which is nothing wrong with that. Um, Constantly, constantly worried about money. And just, I mean, to the point of uh, like showing me that his nails were bitten off and he couldn't sleep and he was so concerned and worried. Uh, And and he claimed to be a follower of the Lord. And I I said, well, how much money do you have? It took a long time for us to get to that. Well, I I don't really want to talk about it. Really don't want to talk about it. And then the lights start going on. And I said, I would like to see financial statements. I want to know what your net worth is. It's worth like $20 million. Because no amount of money would make him content and secure. That's perfectionism at a, at a high level. There's a second reason this happens, and it's sinful also. Unrealistic standards happen to be recognized by others. To be recognized by others. To have others say how wonderful you are, how organized, how smart, how effective... It's great to be all of those things. It's great to make whatever you do as good as possible, but the heart motive is the issue. And when you push unrealistic standards on those around you, you create a sense of, you better not disappoint me or there will be emotional damage to go through. What's the root of that problem? The root is an improper assessment of your importance, making something more important than it really is. And I think a great illustration would be the Pharisees. The Pharisees obsessed with unrealistic standards and it was all to make a show of just how holy and how righteous they were. And Jesus exposed their true heart of these wicked men. He said in Matthew 23, beginning in verse 24, You blind guides, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may be Become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. In this way you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. As a husband, don't have unrealistic standards for your wife. Be gracious. Be flexible. Don't be that guy that she's just tiptoeing around desperately trying not to, 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 to tick off. 
As a father, don't have unrealistic standards for your children. Your children place proper importance on things. I've seen men blow a gasket because a four-year-old spills their juice. What's that about? That's perfectionism. If your wife says a sharp word to you and this is not her habit, just be gracious. It's unrealistic to expect perfection. If your wife is in the habit of giving sharp words, then place proper importance on it by not expecting perfection, but confront the sin and assist her in her sanctification, which is a process. This year, my beloved wife and I will celebrate our 35th wedding anniversary. And the first time we talked about our relationship and and how we functioned together was about a week after we met. The last time we talked about our relationship and how to sanctify each other was yesterday. It is a constant process. Not perfectionism, but helping each other. And I'll say this as a pastor too. I've seen this enough times that it's clearly true. Unrealistic standards are often what's behind discontentment that you may have as a church member. That you have expectations that aren't being met. That when the church as a whole or a particular leader doesn't meet the standard of perfection, you've set in your mind, Satan says, thank you for that open door. I will now enter in with bitterness and anger. So beware of unrealistic standards. Here's a fifth hallmark of a humble Christian man. He's careful about self-promotion. He's careful about self-promotion. Now, you all are you're, you're aware of this dynamic. One of the most uncomfortable experiences we can have as men is the delicate balance of the job interview. Because at a job interview, you're supposed to simultaneously show that you are humble and better than everyone else who's interviewing for the job. <laughs> I mean, how do you do that? And they always ask the question, what do you consider your weaknesses? Well, I feel that I work too hard sometimes. You know, all those bogus answers. I feel I'm overly dedicated to the company line. I'm not talking about a simple assessment of your own skills and abilities that you've acquired. What I'm talking about is the sinful habit of turning topics of conversation to your own heroic exploits all the time. Of being the hero of your own story on a continual basis to everyone around you. It's interesting to me how our sins of the past tend tend to become less and less in our minds and our successes of the past become more legendary as time goes on. Right? By the way, this is terrible in a preacher too. I was listening. I listened to one particular preacher, and I listened to five or six of his sermons. And in every sermon, he told a story where he was the hero. I was like, I can't listen to one more of those. I want to hear a story where Jesus is the hero and I'm the goat. Proverbs twenty-seven two. How do you guard against this outward display of pride? Let a stranger praise you, and not your own mouth; a foreigner, and not your own lips. Paul put it in very blunt terms to the Galatians who were being duped by legalism and spiritual pride. He said in Galatians 6.3, For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Translation, anything above slave is spiritual deception. You are a slave, nothing higher. So what's the antidote to self-promotion? What, what is the antidote? What's the, the cure? The cure is to genuinely pursue thoughts of the glory of God. The glory of God is the filter through which everything goes through and it answers all your questions. Well, should I do A or B? What would give God the most glory and me the least? Do that one. Will my saying such and such give glory to God or to myself? Do you think about the glory of God? 
Is it the major filter for your thoughts, actions, your words? I, I have found that the average believer in American evangelicalism barely even has a concept of what it means to think about the glory of God. When in fact, the glory of God is the whole point of everything, including your life. It's the antidote to pride. It is the hallmark of humility. You're a slave. You're a tool in the hands of God. If you've done anything effective, it's because God chose to make that happen and to give you the resources to accomplish and achieve. You've done nothing on your own. He's given you all the tools, and they're all from Him. Psalm 127.1 Unless Yahweh builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless Yahweh watches the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. Nothing you've done, nothing you have achieved has happened except for the reason that God ordained it. Everything goes back to Him. And you say, well, I'm a pretty smart guy. Yeah, you could have been born with an IQ of 40. Well, I have this skill. Yeah, you could have been born without hands. Well, I have this. Do you get it here? Or how about this one? Well, I'm good at... How about... Uh, who gave you the air you've been breathing for the last few minutes? Who gave you the water? Who gave you the food? Everything you have is from the Lord. So watch yourself in your conversations that you aren't plastering everyone with your accomplishments all the time. Let another praise you. It isn't pleasing to God and it's wearying to others. It, 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 it starts the look at the watch routine. The, boy, you know, ask others about themselves and let others praise you. Here's the sixth hallmark of a humble man of God. He strives to please God, not men. He strives to please God, not men. It is a trap to live your life in order to please everyone around you. And I don't mean the legitimate sacrifice of, of service to your family and to your church, and that may gain you some accolades, and that's fine if it does, but, but it doesn't have to. What I mean is making decisions, pursuing actions that are based solely on what others would think instead of on what's right, what the Lord would have you do. A constant thinking about the approval of others. Galatians 1.10 The Apostle Paul has been just... just spiritually murdered by the Galatian church. They, they have looked down on him and turned away from him, turned away from the gospel. Even in, in chapter 4, he says, what did I do? Why have you now turned away from me? But in Galatians 1.10, he says, for am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a slave of Christ. Did you catch that? If he's a slave of Christ, he's no longer trying to please men. In speaking of slaves and their relationships to their masters in Ephesians 6, 5 and 6, he says to be obedient but with a genuine heart. He says in Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 5, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in the integrity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. In other words, the man pleaser is hypocritical, that he probably doesn't even like the very people that he's trying to please and impress. But humility says that your deepest yearning is to please God. And this may mean displeasing some people. It may mean that. Let me give you two somewhat lengthy examples. Because I think man-pleasing is one of the, one of the greatest banes of the church. First example, as a pastor, I am in this odd and unique position of relying on your generosity in our partnership for the gospel together. 
you've said you want to be spiritually fed God has called me to do that spiritual feeding you've enabled me to spend my life in the study and preaching of God's word and and, and listen every time I get gas every time I buy food for my family every time I make a mortgage payment I thank the Lord for it and I also thank the Lord for you because you're making all that possible and yet to the very men who have generously decided to support my family I've been called to please God not you I've been called to speak truth from Scripture so that it does what Jeremiah 1.10 says the preached word is to do, to uproot, to tear down, to cause to perish, and to pull down all the lack of truth in your heart, and then, and only then, to build and to plant with the Word of God. The irony is, is that if a pastor will strive to please God, this means giving the congregation what they need and not what they want in their flesh. I don't know a single pastor who hasn't made enemies because he gave the church members what they need and not what they sinfully want. Can't please men, you must please God. Let me give you a second example, maybe hit a little closer to home. There's a seminary student who was trying to help his parents' marriage problems. And his parents were wealthy. And his mother was, um, the Greek is, a piece of work. <laughs> Just a difficult woman. She was difficult emotionally to be around, and his dad could never please his mother. She was always upset about something, always nitpicking, always nagging. No one around her liked her, and yet she claimed to be a believer. And in a later moment of lucidity, the seminary student's dad said, You know, I married a woman that nobody on planet Earth likes. Her son was confronting his dad about being a people pleaser because he was so concerned about trying to please her even as she was sinning that he wouldn't disciple her, he wouldn't help her deal with her sin, he wouldn't confront it. They were very wealthy. The dad was constantly taking uh, the, the wife on exotic vacation, giving her anything she wanted, tremendously expensive outings, all in a continual attempt to appease her and all while she just nagged him into the ground. Why? Because he's trying to please essentially an unpleasable woman. Well, eventually, at the urging of his son, the dad sat down with his wife, and he had to say this quickly because she didn't let you get a word in edgewise usually. He basically said, You are in the habit of scolding and reprimanding and complaining to me as a daily habit. No matter what I do to try to please you, it's never enough. I would like for you to seriously work on this and repent. I am obligated by the Lord to provide for you and to protect you. I am not obligated to take, on, take you on vacations and spend more money on you than you need for basic necessities. So all that stops until we're in a good place and you've worked through this issue of unrestrained nagging. <laughs> and boy, did he get it. The yelling, the crying, the backlash... And the man was a physician, and his wife learned the language, and she said, well, you're being hard on me. You see, I have, I'm mentally ill, and that's why you need to take me on all these things. No, she wasn't mentally ill. She was spiritually ill. He stuck to his guns, and he stopped trying to please her, and she eventually left him. But he acted in righteousness. You don't please men. Being the man pleaser is a form of pride which is a bottomless pit. You never, you, you never do enough. For that elusive moment when you believe you've pleased everyone. And it's impossible. You can't do it. Let me give you one more hallmark of a humble Christian man. He eagerly receives instruction. He eagerly receives instruction. 
This is a surefire diagnostic tool to see quickly that the man is cultivating his own pride. He can't receive instruction. Proverbs 19.20 Listen to counsel and receive discipline that you may be wise in the end of your days. As a pastor, I've seen this in the church, that those who come week after week to hear things they already agree with rather than coming week after week to be exhorted and encouraged and instructed in the Lord. I think many of you have experienced the frustration of trying to speak into a man's life and he gives excuses. He gives justifications for everything, resistance. He argues technicalities with you. There's not a sense of softness and teachability. Beware of this in your own heart. It leads to seeing yourself as somehow more objective than others. That, that you can really see the truth. And it leads to be una- being unable to respect anyone more than you respect yourself. As a matter of fact, a professing believer who does not eagerly receive instruction at best is beset by personal pride at a high level. At worst, was never a genuine believer to, be- to begin with. John 9 records Jesus healing a man who was born blind. And this man, if you recall, is then interrogated by the Pharisees. They kept trying to get him to deny Christ and say that Jesus is a sinner who's not from God. And and the blind man was perplexed. He was flabbergasted. He uses the word marvelous, like mysterious. And this is weird. And the man answered and said to them, well, here's a marvelous thing. This is an odd thing. Here's Here's a wondrous thing that you do not know where he, that is Christ, is from? And he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he listens to him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. That's a very fancy way of the blind man saying, Duh! (laughs) Oh, but you never say that to a Pharisee. John 9.34, they answered and said to him, you were born entirely in sins and you are teaching us. Other translations say, you were born steeped in sin. How dare you teach us? What's the implication? I wasn't born steeped in sin. And so they put him out. The one who hates instruction in the truth when it corners you personally, that's potentially a Pharisee-like person. And listen, I've experienced this as a pastor. I have had people in the church for years Say, oh, we love how the Word of God preached really confronts our sin. But when somebody individually confronts their sin, that goes out the window. You may say you love the Word of God, but when someone confronts your sin personally and there's only one-on-one, two eyeballs to two eyeballs, that's the test. Instead, eagerly receive instruction. And here's the right way to, to think about instruction. Proverbs 13, 14. The instruction of the wise is a fountain of life. To turn aside from the snares of death, it's something to be thankful for. Now, I have to say, I'm, I'm speaking of the negative. By far, the majority experience that at Grace, we, many of the leaders have enjoyed is, is speaking to someone and speaking in someone's life and having them say, thank you, that's a fountain of life for me. You, you've kept me from pain and I'm so grateful for that. That's what you do when you're humble. Humility allows for and is eager for instruction. Now, if you tend toward being argumentative, if your go-to response begins with, yeah, but. If you receive instruction and then spend time thinking about how it really doesn't apply to you or how the one instructing you is wrong or, well, they had a bad attitude or they said one word wrong, so therefore everything they say is bad. And take a step back and understand all that is is a manifestation of pride. 
That's all it is. Humility is eager to receive instruction. The reason I wanted to make this an emphasis this year is that humility is what will make a church great. Ironically, the lower you are in your estimation, the higher you are in God's estimation, and the more He will entrust ministry to us. Why would the Lord want to entrust ministry to a church filled with prideful men and women who are just constantly bickering and, and, and looking to themselves? What the Lord is looking for is a church full of slaves who take Philippians 2 and say, you are more important than me. No, you are more important than me. If there's going to be an argument, let it be over who's most important. God hates pride. He hates it. And He won't just bring humility. He will bring humiliation into your life. Or, worst, worst of all, He would bring that moment described in 1 Corinthians 3 where you stand before the Lord and He says you have been saved by the grace of God. But your life was worthless. You lived it in pride and you, as Paul says, go to heaven naked as it were through a fire. Don't let that be you. Last time I quoted Andrew Murray, the great Dutch Reformed pastor of the 19th century. His thoughts are worthy of revisiting. Andrew Murray wrote, Humility is not something we bring to God. It is simply the sense of entire nothingness which comes when we see how truly God is all and in which we make way for God to be all. He said, It is acknowledging the truth of your position as creature and yielding God His place. Now, I've preached on humility before and I'm going to say one last thing. I I am a big believer in meditation on the Word of God. That you walking out this door won't magically change this. What will change it in your heart is taking the notes you have and deciding that this week, the next week, and for the next month or whatever, you're going to plow your way through all these scriptures. You're going to examine your heart. You want to be really gutsy? You sit down and talk to your wives and say, list all the ways I demonstrate pride. I want to hear it. And then shut, shut your mouth and write. And then pray through those. Humility is something you work at, not something that is magically uh, given to you. It's something that you give yourself by the grace of God. And and the reason I, I can be so blunt about this is because I also know that you will only be happy and joyful when you're humble. There's no such thing as a joyful, prideful Christian. They don't exist. So I want your joy. I want your delight in the Lord. And that comes with bending the knee as a slave. Better to be a slave of God than a slave of your own sin. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this time we've had together this morning. We are all slaves judicially before you. You have bought us with a price. The very Son of God gave his life to purchase our salvation. And so we have, we, we have complete obligation to you. We have complete duty to you to walk in the manner worthy of the gospel to which you've been called. And I pray that for myself. I pray it for every man here, Lord, that we would be humble before you, that we would be those who are slaves, that we would receive the difficulties and the pains of this life with, with grace and with humility as those who deserve nothing but judgment and just being thankful that heaven awaits us, Lord. Help us to be servants of all and let us be a church full of men who serve and who sacrifice for one another, viewing each other as more important than ourselves. 
And we believe that Christ would be pleased with this, and so we would ask you to empower us by the Spirit to do these things, all for Christ's sake and for His glory. Amen.